This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Now, listeners will know that that is the voice of Doc Brown from the first Back to the Future movie, exclaiming and ecstatic that his flux capacitor does indeed work. And that is the feeling that I have right about now, realizing that something that I began back in 2006, back in my mid-twenties of all places, finally does seem to work. And this has been a small book of essays that I've titled Notes from the Grid. There may be 12 or 13 essays in all. And despite it taking 16 years to write, what it has what it has amounted to, or what it has been whittled down to, is probably about 100, 125 pages in a small paperback. And the reason it took 16 years to write, I can have a lot of guesses. My wife says that it's simply not the kind of book you can write in your mid-twenties. But looking at it now, I'm not sure if it's the kind of book you can write in your early forties either. It was a very strange visitation each time I sat down to work on this. It's It comes from the very depths and the very center and the very soul of me, but at the same time it has nothing to do with me at all. And I was always caught by the story of Lao Tse, who apparently left a copy of the Tao Te Ching with um, some sort of a, a border guard in ancient China and walked off and disappeared. And I realized that if I have a Tao Te Ching within me, if I have something small, distilled, possibly fragmentary, hopefully vivid, hopefully aphoristic, just collections of stories, statements, um, parables, things like that, small autobiographical moments, then Notes from the Grid is it. And what these essays do, they all gather around a basic idea, which is to ask how it is that over the past 20 years, 30 years or so, at least since I've been a child, so at least since the 1980s, how it is that we have come to handle things like culture and technology, privacy, education, history, and a great deal else. And that, that in itself might be an indication of why it took 16 years to write, because all of those things have changed so drastically uh, not just since 2006, uh, or not just since 1980, but even since 2006. You might even say they've changed drastically since 2015. Things are changing so quickly. But I do think that perhaps they have reached a sort of pinnacle, a sort of crazy normalcy, where it is possible to reflect and write about them in the way that 
I have. And so what I'm going to do over the next month or so is give you the audiobook first. I'm going to read all of them here because I think that this podcast, this space, my voice and your ears is the way to give this to the world first. And in one way, that is because it is just simply a, a way of saying thank you to the listeners out there. I've done more than 230 episodes of this podcast by now, and anyone who has listened to even a fraction of those will know that I've already handled things like culture, technology, privacy, education, history, creativity, and so on. But I don't think that I have handled them in quite the same way that uh, you will hear in these essays. Years ago, a good friend of mine wrote to me about the birth of his child, and he said, I'd been in search of meaning my whole life, and there it was. Now, of course, this is the usual thing that we hear after a child is born, but coming from someone as creative as him, and as aware of religion and art as he is, it made me pause. I have said before, especially on this podcast, that for me, art is primarily a way to help the artist and the audience cultivate empathy and alleviate loneliness. And because of this, art and religion have never lost their meaning for me. But for my friend, both pursuits definitely had. Only the birth of his child could fill that space. Understanding this made me realize something very simple. The only real problem is meaning and our ability to find it or create it. We can make anything mean whatever we want, from a stubbed toe to our chosen religious text. And very often the same event or the same words can yield elation or despair. And if we can't find or manufacture meaning out of something wholesome and rich, we will eventually do it with something divisive and destructive. And so the problem isn't religious violence, political violence, racial or national hatreds, rape or murder or child abuse or drug addiction, cultural snobbery or just the most everyday cruelty. The problem is why anyone finds meaning in these ideas or actions, and why, for such people, meaning is so difficult to find outside of negativity and destruction. And even further than that, the problem isn't just that people do things that others consider to be bad or evil, but that those things considered to be good and virtuous are not convincing or meaningful enough to affect their behavior. The question to ask about religion or love, about family or culture, is what is it about the way we talk about these things, the way we try to convince other people about these things, that makes them seem naive or simplistic or manipulative or just a joke? One answer seems to be that 
When traditional structures like religion or family are emptied of meaning, their former adherents are left with no sense whatsoever of self-importance. And this may have something to do with why so many of us today are falling prey to various conspiracy theories on all political sides. The writer Gilbert Murray has said that the best seed ground for superstition is a society in which the fortunes of men and women seem to bear practically no relation to their merits and efforts. And it's true that, if anything, conspiracy theories do give their devotees a rich sense of meaning and power that they believe that they would otherwise lack. So that regardless of whether or not Lee Harvey Oswald assassinated John F. Kennedy, I think that Norman Mailer has identified what seems to be the real reason why so many of us need to believe that he didn't, and it has nothing to do with recently declassified files. This is what Norman Mailer had to say. It is virtually not assimilable to our reason that a small, lonely man felled a giant in the midst of his limousines, his legions, his throng, and his security. If such a non-entity destroyed the leader of the most powerful nation on earth, then a world of disproportion engulfs us, and we live in a universe that is absurd. We have come at least to the philosophical crux of our inquiry. It would state that the sudden death of a man as large in his possibilities as John Fitzgerald Kennedy is more tolerable if we can perceive his killer as tragic rather than absurd. That is because absurdity corrodes our species." End quote. And so I would expand that to say, though, that our inability to deal with apparent absurdity and meaninglessness, that is what, is, that is what actually corrodes our species, as does the myopia which assumes that such apparently meaningless events don't litter the entire catalog of world history, because they do. The problem isn't to reinterpret these events so that they are sufficiently tragic or meaningful in any conventional sense, but it is to understand that we should learn not to expect meaning where it just won't appear. And sometimes huge political events are those places where meaning doesn't appear, and absurdity is the thing that does. Now, this inordinate focus on historical events leads into the tendency that looks for meaning and only accepts meaning in almost exclusively in external events, or in the exaggerated form of fame that hounds us every single day, all of us, from all directions, the message is blared at us that true meaning can only come from group experiences rather than private ones, and that for an experience or an opinion to have any meaning, it must be seen, it must be shared, it must be commented upon and liked. Nowadays, even worthy social causes are demanding perpetual engagement and claiming that anyone who steps away for even a moment is just part of the problem. The message that we are hearing is that the only worthwhile actions and thoughts, from the cheapest to the most sophisticated, 
are the ones that can be justified by their public and practical character. Now, this lie is corrosive enough, but more broadly, how many criminals have said that they only sought fulfillment in violence after they were left with, quote, nothing, a nothing that usually corresponded to a failed relationship, a failed career, or some sort of social embarrassment, never having been convinced or taught that there might be other kinds of fulfillment, that there might be private fulfillment even, the desire for outward and visible achievement is doubled down on. Power is sought through the violent control of others, while celebrity or infamy is sought through the attention given to their crimes. The idea, the very simple idea, the idea that fills this entire book, this entire series of podcast episodes, the idea that an achievement can remain entirely private and only require power over our own selves, discipline over our own selves, and discipline over our own minds, and that this kind of achievement and this kind of meaning can mean as much as any outward gesture, uh, the idea that this is even possible just remains a ridiculous notion. And I know of no, no better example of this point of view then a remark from a letter that Lee Harvey Oswald wrote to his brother, where he says this, quote, Happiness is not based on oneself. It does not consist of a small home or of taking and getting. Happiness is taking part in the struggle where there is no borderline between one's own personal world and the world in general, end quote. And indeed, what else does our culture in the year 2022 demand but the obliteration of the borderline between our private selves and the outer world? But we all need a space, we all need a space in which to quietly look at ourselves and listen. As the psychologist Carl Jung once said, of those who race unhealthily after religious experiences, the same could be said for anyone today who races after public experiences, simply to avoid their own private life, their own mind, their own soul, their own heart. And this is what Jung said. People will do anything, no matter how absurd, in order to avoid facing their own souls. They will practice Indian yoga and all its exercises. They will observe a strict regimen of diet. They will learn theosophy by heart or mechanically repeat mystic texts from the literatures of the whole world, all because they cannot get on with themselves and have not the slightest faith that anything useful could ever come out of their own souls. The doctrine that all evil thoughts come from the heart and that the human soul is a sink of iniquity must lie deep in the marrow of their bones. But it is worth man's while to take pains with himself and see that he has something in his soul that can grow." End quote. 
Now, I left a comment on a blog many years ago that said some of these same things. The author of the blog was one of those jealous and embittered writers who thought that he deserved the kind of success that was eluding him. And in response to what I wrote, I was accused of being a troll, something I had to look up since back in 2006. I had never heard the term. And how amazing it was to discover then that the strange ideas I was spouting then, and I'm only spouting more of here, they were so unbelievable that it was assumed that I was trying to piss everyone off on purpose. Now, I should make it clear, there is, of course, nothing wrong with wanting to be successful at whatever we do. And there's nothing wrong with being upset when the success doesn't take place. As any listener of this podcast knows, I have had my own deep and difficult and abiding issues with this problem. But if our entire lives, if our entire lives are bound up in the success of a job or a relationship, in the outcome of an election or in the writing of a book, or even in the raising of a child, then we are bound to be broken. We are bound to be broken. It's inevitable. There has to be a point at which all of us, no matter who we are, no matter where we are, no matter what we do, no matter what we aspire to do, no matter our education level, no matter what our jobs are, our family life is, there has to be a point at which all of us can sit in a room with our own thoughts and rediscover our own privacy, our own hidden life. And what we find there has to mean as much as every public gesture, as every outward moment. Even the emphasis that I have learned from in Judaism, which places such an immense importance on community and family, even that has only convinced me that neither can really be attended to, family or community, without first attending to ourselves. Now, as much as we would like to pretend otherwise, I would guess that those who find social interaction difficult probably far outnumber those who are able to achieve it with ease. And so our tragedy today is not just that we live in such an immediate and visual culture, and not just uh, because this culture bombards us with the example of being seen and heard, but it tells us that this is the only kind of life that is worth living, constant engagement and constantly being seen, constantly being heard. Now, I once came across an independent publisher of poetry whose submission guidelines said something like, don't bother sending us your work unless you are a poet who can promote yourself. Now, on the face of it, this isn't so terrible. Somebody like Walt Whitman would probably have spun social media to his uses instantly. But it seems a ridiculous requirement for an otherwise self-conscious and asocial group of people to demand that they both sacrifice their time to a medium few people read or engage with, and also to demand that they become professional marketers, especially with, quote, nerd culture just becoming another multi-million dollar way for 
people to be social, there needs to be room again for actual nerds, actual cranks, actual people who belong absolutely nowhere and who enjoy strange things more than they enjoy wearing ironic t-shirts. Now, for me, anyhow, the life of Beethoven is a great corrective here. In his lifetime, Beethoven was not a marble bust walking the streets of Vienna, bathing in his own fame. Instead, he was consumed with his private passion for writing music and for little else. He could in no way pretend to play nice and polite company. As a recent biographer has said, Beethoven served humankind, but never understood people. And though he yearned with all his heart for love and companionship, year after year, he could bear humanity less and less in the flesh." End quote. And this is one of my favorite things, as, as Beethoven himself remarked with keen self-perception, everything I do, apart from music, is badly done and stupid. Now that bears repeating because that's, if you don't know anything about Beethoven's biography, about his life, you only know the fine music. Um, that is not the kind of remark you would imagine coming from that, the creator of that music. But of course, his life is filled with remarks just like that. He said this, just to repeat it again, everything I do apart from music is badly done and stupid. Now we should all be allowed to do one thing well and be stupid with the rest. The entire world should not have to live by the rules that a news anchor lives by. We should not always be presentable. We should not always even be comprehensible. And we should not always be made up for the cameras. Another example is the poet William Blake who essentially retreated from public life in the early 1800s, I think it was, in order to write, to illustrate, and to publish his long poems by himself, all with the near certainty that future generations, because his own ignored him, uh, would see him for what he was. His stubbornness is well documented, and he proudly proclaimed once, I thank God that I courageously pursued my course through the darkness. And in his poetry, we also read these two lines. I must create a system or be enslaved by another man's. I will not reason and compare. My business is to create. And in one of my favorite passages of any biography, this is what one of William Blake's recent biographers has said. Uh, William Blake's independence meant that he could preserve his vision beyond all taint, and that integrity, and that integrity is an essential aspect of his genius, but it also encouraged him to withdraw from the world of common discourse. Although these consequences were not immediately apparent, over the years his range of reference and illusion became more private and more confined. Out of his isolation he created a great myth but it was one that was never vouchsafed to his contemporaries, and it is one that, even now, is generally neglected or misunderstood. William Blake's life 
is, in that sense, a parable of the artist who avoids the marketplace, where all others come to buy and to sell. He preserved himself inviolate, but his freedom became a form of solitude. He worked for himself, and he listened only to himself, and in the process he lost any ability to judge his own work. He had the capacity, he did have the capacity, to become a great public and religious poet, but instead he turned in upon himself and gained neither influence nor reputation. We need not follow the more extreme examples, then, of Beethoven and William Blake, and certainly the kind of life they suggest is not a conventionally happy one. But then again, the conventionally happy life, whatever that means, is one with a certain public as opposed to private bias. And there is no reason to suppose that a reinvigoration of one's private life can't be fulfilling. For some, and I guess for many, that is actually a much better life than the one on offer by cable news, by social media, and by the perpetual advertising that surrounds us every day. A recent retiree once told me the story of going upstairs in his house one day in autumn. The neighborhood was so quiet, he said, that he could actually hear the leaves landing on the garage and sliding off. It was the kind of private instant of time that would have been impossible if he were still at work every day, or if his kids were still living at home, or if his wife had chosen to retire at the same time as him. Of such moments as these, revolutionaries and activists are not made, but it is a grave mistake to imagine that only with big moments and only with big people is there any meaning at all. The greatest religious teaching is also the hardest one, and it speaks beyond any need for religion at all. And it is this, it is that human life has inherent dignity and purpose, that we are sufficient in ourselves, that we, as we are right now, are overflowing with meaning. It's as simple as that, I'll repeat it. The greatest religious teaching is also the hardest one, and it speaks beyond any need for religion at all. And it is that human life has inherent dignity and purpose, that we are sufficient in ourselves, that we are overflowing with meaning, that we don't need to buy what is being sold, and we don't need to become sellers ourselves. Now, no one, at least for me, has put this better than George Eliot in the closing words of her novel Middlemarch, and this is probably the the best final paragraph of any book that I know. This is incredible stuff. This is what she says. She is speaking from the point of view of uh, the protagonist of the novel, um, and this is what it says. Her finely touched spirit had still its fine issues, though they were not widely visible. Her full nature, like that river of which Cyrus broke the strength, spent itself in channels which had no great name on the earth. 
but the effect of her being on those around her was incalculably diffusive, for the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts, and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. I'll repeat that as well, the second half of that paragraph. But the effect of her, the effect of her being on those around her was incalculably diffusive. For the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts, and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who live faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. I pass a sign outside of a business every now and then, and staring out at me beneath a bad logo is a caricature of Albert Einstein, complete with mustache and wild hair. And I wonder if anyone who knew him, either as a lowly patent clerk or as the head of the Institute for Advanced Studies, could have ever imagined that someday Einstein's face alone would suggest the most banal kind of problem-solving. While writing about his introduction to rock and roll, Bruce Springsteen has called Elvis a jukebox Dionysus, and for Springsteen, rock music promised the, quote, life-blessing, wall-destroying, heart-changing, mind-opening bliss of a freer, more liberated existence, end quote. It's hard to imagine rock music meaning anything like this nowadays, especially when you can buy Nirvana onesies for newborns. It's also hard for me to believe that any of the bands I listened to back in the 90s were creating their music so that 30 years later their songs could end up being heard in elevators and bathrooms. Pat Benatar's Love is a Battlefield doesn't have quite the same punch either 40 years later and blared over the heads of Sunday morning patrons at Shop and Save. And I should say here that Notes from the Grid is filled with statements like Sunday morning, or years ago, or ages ago, or last week. And since it has taken 16 years to do this, very often those statements, sometimes in the same essay, could just as well refer to 2006 as 2020, as 2015. It just so happens that this instance of Sunday morning was from just two weeks ago. And so, like the kitschy reproductions of Michelangelo's statue of David, the way that we all become the vampire of the things that we love and respect, eventually draining the life and meaning out of them until they are just background noise or nostalgia, this is pretty staggering, but it is also inevitable. The way we live now has also removed every barrier that once existed between us and the experience of art and culture. 
barriers which gave things like magazines and movies and music their own space. Even 20 years ago, there was no way that a book could be read at four in the morning in the dark while sitting on the toilet. But now we can read or watch or listen to anything, pretty much anywhere and at any time, and all of it is constantly interrupted by something else. The total experience of any one individual thing, a book, a movie, a painting, a piece of music, or even the sound of another person talking to us, has been replaced by the corrosive impulse to move on to the next one, endlessly. Kurt Cobain predicted something like this back in 1993, and what he said about rock music might as well stand for pop culture today as a whole. And let's listen to what he said. This is from a documentary called About a Sun. It's already turned into nothing but a fashion statement and an identity for kids to use. It's a tool for them to fuck and have a social life. And at that point, I, don't, I really can't see music being of any importance to a teenager, really. I think they'll use sounds and, and tones and use it in their virtual reality machines and just listen to it that way and get the same emotions from it. And then and then go to a party. There'll be a virtual reality machine there with a whole bunch of um, headphones and if you want to talk to people and listen to the virtual reality machine you can do that and, and go into the other bedroom and fuck and drink and but actually I think virtual reality machines virtual will actually machines get, you high. get you high. Technology would be that good. Now this is a stunning prophecy but of course it isn't everything. As much as people want to deny that culture or religion or ideologies change and grow. The fact that meaning can deteriorate is the reason that all of these things do change and must grow and grow again. For while anything that is meaningful will eventually become hollowed and emptied, at the same time, some new version of it is always only a moment away. The poet W.B. Yeats said, that a performance of Hamlet is always to me what high mass is to a good Catholic. It is my supreme religious event. But even for Yeats, there must have been moments where Hamlet bored him to tears. But these moments were surely followed by suddenly seeing it anew all over again. In this way, anything that is worthwhile can never really die. It only needs the space and the circumstances to become reinvigorated. So that after seeing Einstein on a silly sign, he can be revived by learning about his life. And any tired meme of Michelangelo's David can easily be surmounted by finding a photo of the real thing and staring into his inscrutable eyes. Or actually, sometimes, it's the reproduction of David sitting on a desk, which the adults in the room just think of as being part of the clutter they don't see. Sometimes that is the very thing that catches a child's attention and ignites a lifelong interest in art. And some version of that situation is everywhere. It floored me in high school, for instance, to learn that part of Raphael's fresco, The School of Athens, was incorporated into the cover 
for Guns N' Roses' Use Your Illusion albums. And what better way is there, really, to jump out of MTV and into Renaissance art? So, that despite the existence of Kurt Cobain action figures, his music and his words can still tear your heart out. Happiness, too, and the revival of meaning, this is also inevitable. And nearly all of these revivals are private. They take place offline, and they are meant for no one else's ears but our own. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to Human Voices Wake Us, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.